This is a download from Force Migration Online. To find out more, please go to www.forcemigration.org. Nina Hall. Uh, Nina is a DPhil student in international relations and I've had the great privilege of being able to work with her over the last three years. Her work looks at understanding and theorizing international organizational change and to do that she looks very innovatively at the way in which international organizations respond to the emergence of a new area, in this case climate change, looking at transformation in UNHCR, IOM and UNDP to understand that process of international organizational change. And it's pioneering work in many senses in that it contributes to how we understand international organizations, that international relations is often neglected. But it's also pioneering in some of the methods that Nina's adopted, doing field work not only in Geneva and New York, but also looking down to the field level and how these organizations have responded to climate change in the Kenyan context. And beyond that contribution to international relations, her work inevitably makes a huge contribution to understanding this debate on environmental migration and displacement through its focus on UNHCR and IOM. So it's wonderful to have you here, and this really adds the international organization dimension to looking at the politics of this area. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alex, and thanks to you all for coming along today. I'm really looking forward to the, the conversation and feedback um, at the end of the session. So as Alex mentioned, I'm presenting my DFIL research, which looks at two particular organisations, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, which is personified here by Antonio Guterres, the High Commissioner, and the International Organisation for Migration, personified here by William Lacey Swing, who's the Director General. And I began my thesis in the year of Copenhagen, the sort of biggest climate change summit ever. Many of you may be familiar with it, it was um, referred to in the sort of climate change jargon as COP15, 15th meeting. And both of these leaders were present at this negotiations. In fact, it was the first time that both the High Commissioner and the Director General of IOM were present at the negotiations. And I also attended and went to, to this side event where they spoke out about the issue of climate change and displacement. They talked about how climate change would lead to, as we are familiar with, increase in uh, natural disasters such as floods, droughts, sea level rise, and this would then lead people to move, forced displacement. So in these speeches they implied that there was some sort of causal link between climate change and displacement. In other words, that the very term environment or climate change migration was meaningful. And I'm going to come back to this in my speech. At a basic level I was also intrigued by their very presence at the climate change negotiations. Why were these two non-environmental organisations engaged in the negotiations? Why were they present, given they had very specific mandates to deal with, in the case of UNHCR, forced displacement, uh, refugees, that didn't include forced displacement due to climate change, and in the case of IOM, to deal with migration. And so my thesis, at a very basic level, tries to answer this question of why they have engaged with the issue of climate change and displacement. And also, to what extent have they changed beyond the mere rhetoric that we heard coming out of Copenhagen? So I've got two aims of my thesis and of the presentation today. 
The first one is the sort of empirical one, to chart and trace how these organisations have changed and responded to the issue of, of climate change and displacement. Because there's no real there's no academic secondary literature on this. There's a lot of polyrecency reports, but no scholarship. The second is a theoretical one, which Alex has already alluded to, and that's I guess where my contribution sits within the IR framework and understanding how intergovernmental organisations, or as I'm going to call them, IGOs, adapt to new issues outside their mandate. And I'm going to make an argument about how organisational type matters. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to run through my stance on environmental migration, given the given this seminar series, I want to position myself there. And then talk to you about my research question, theoretical framework, how I define organisational change and my research methods, and then focus in, this will be the main substantive part of the speech. So, environmental migration. For those who are new to the seminar series, this is focusing on sort of critical perspectives on environmental migration. I'm just going to recap a little bit. Um, basically, we've seen a growing literature in the last few decades investigating the links that, between environment and migration and displacement. And at a very common sense level, this sort of it makes sense that climate change would cause displacement. As I noted, and as the High Commissioner and the Director General of IOM sort of talked about at Copenhagen, climate change is going to lead to increase in uh, sea level rise, flooding, which is going to lead people to move. And this was the basis in the 1990s for Norman Myers, um, two articles where he estimated that about the 250 million people would become environmental refugees. And these figures have been cited by numerous NGOs, um, other academics, the UN, a number of people. So that's the kind of basic common sense. However, increasingly we've recognised that this link isn't quite as simple as that. And asserting that there is this clear deterministic link between climate change and migration is very problematic. First of all, we can't attribute a particular natural disaster to climate change. And secondly, and probably most importantly, migration, as many of you who are migration theorists in the room will know, is a very complex social phenomenon. It's not caused by any single factor, but mediated by a number of social, economic and political factors. So even in the most severe situations of environmental disaster, not everyone will necessarily move. The classic case is Hurricane Katrina. You see massive flooding in New Orleans. Does everyone move? No. A lot of people, in fact, the worst off, can't leave because of lack of social or financial capital. So the, the statement here is that the link between climate change and displacement or migration is complex and not causal. My stance on the literature then takes a slightly different angle and says that what we need to be focusing on rather than investigating this causal link is understanding the politics of the issue linkage. The issue linkage being the link between climate change and displacement or migration. And the questions are, who has constructed this link and why? And in particular, what does this issue linkage, how does this issue linkage serve intergovernmental organisations like the two I study? Now I'm going to still use the term, even though I've problematised it, environmental migration or climate change migration displacement somewhat um, interchangeably because this is how the organisations use the term. But I do want to note that I am um, aware of the, the problems and the ambiguities of it. So, my research question. I look at how and why have UNHCR and IOM responded to climate change between 2000 and 2011. Now the key sort of thing to note um, from the outset of this is I'm looking at a particular species, if you like, of international organisations. I'm not looking at international non-governmental organisations like Amnesty or Oxfam. I'm very much focused on organisations that are made up comprised of member states. 
Now this distinction is important because there's a particular body of international relations literature that talks about how we would expect these organisations to behave. Um, and my thesis speaks to that. So the dominant literature in international relations predicts that these organisations would follow what their member states tell them to do. So countries come together, set up these organisations, give them a specific mandate, say to protect refugees, and then monitor and ensure that they continue to do that on a regular basis. And here comes the interesting puzzle. In the cases of UNHCR and IOM, they haven't been explicitly mandated by their member states to engage with this issue of climate change and displacement. So they don't have this mandate that we would expect them to, yet they're still engaging with the debate. So how can we explain that? And the argument that I'm sort of presenting up front here today, and this is the, the core argument of my thesis, is that it's twofold. Firstly, intergovernmental organisations respond to new issue, to issue areas when the issue is high status. A high status issue I define as having two components. First of all, high absolute salience. This means it's seen as really important on the international sphere. Leaders are talking about in international forums on a regular basis. And the second component of this is relative salience. And this is where the notion of an issue linkage comes in. Relative salience means that new issue has some relative, some uh, link to the core issue of that international organisation. So in this case we'd be saying, when is there a link between UNHCR's core mandate of refugees and this new issue of climate change? And the second element which I'm going to focus on more here is this notion of intergovernmental organisational type. And I'm going to argue that the type of organisation influences the timing and extent of change. This is what explains the variation that we might see between different organisations and how they respond. So bear with me, I'm just going to do a little theoretical digression and then I'll, I'll get back to the sort of more empirical nature. Um, I set out a typology of international organisations and it's a spectrum and these are ideal types. So at one end, if you like, we have normative organisations and other functional. Normative organisations, what distinguishes them is that they have supervisory status over a regime of, in, of international law. In the case um, here, the examples I have are the International Committee of the Red Cross, supervises humanitarian law, International Labour Organisation, over a lot of labour law, and UNHCR, refugee law. The other end of the spectrum, we have a functional organisation. These are organisations that essentially carry out initiatives or projects that states tell them to do. They don't have any supervisory status over, uh, over any uh, regime of law. So think about the World Meteorological Organization. That's set up to collect data on the climate. It does that for states. Now, what does this tell us about how we'd expect organizations to behave? My argument essentially is, is that they follow different sorts of behavior logics. So if we take the normative organisations, they get moral legitimacy from their supervisory status over international, a regime of international law. And this gives them a unique identity which they seek to protect. So in the UNHCR case, it, has, uh, it oversees refugee law and it wants to maintain and, and protect that unique status overseeing it. And it follows then a logic of appropriateness. It does things when those new issue areas are appropriate to its core identity. On the other hand, a functional organisation follows a logic of consequences. What this means is it sort of follows a rational instrumental logic. It will engage with a new issue if it sees there's funding and financing out there. Now these categories I think will become more clear as I go through the um, presentation and you get a sense of, of, of what I mean. 
But the core hypothesis that I'm putting forward are that normative organisations will engage with new issues outside their mandate when they are high relative salience, when it can see that there's a link to what they do. In other words, it's appropriate to their core identity. Functional, on the other hand, will engage when the issue has high absolute salience, when they can see that there's basically funding available for it. Okay. So now I'm just going to give you a bit of background about each organisation and how it fits into this typology. So UNHCR, um, as many of you will know, was established in the post-World War II era in a very particular political context. And it was established with supervisory status over refugee law that was set out in Article 35 of the Refugee Convention. Now this was very unique to have this kind of supervisory status. And it means that it's the sole authority on, on refugee law. And it was also, the Refugee Convention and the UNHCR statute also set out a very specific definition of what a refugee is. Now this is important to um, be clear about this de definition because the notion of refugee gets used very differently in sort of popular media and by NGOs. But a refugee in UNHCR's sense, and which is at the heart of its identity, is a well has somebody with a well-founded fear of persecution based on reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. And you'll notice that environmental change, climate change displacement, any of these sort of terms that we now use today does not feature at all. So essentially, what we're saying is that UNHCR was not mandated to cover anyone fleeing environmental change or climate change or any natural disaster. That was outside their mandate. So IOM, functional organisation, as I've mentioned, it was um, not established with any supervisory status over a regime of international law. It was actually set up at a very similar time as uh, UNHCR in the post-World War II era. And it was established with a, quite a broad mandate to facilitate migration from Europe. In fact, it, um, this, is, this is from the Constitution, and it had to make arrangements for the transport of migrants, particularly labour migrants, it was focused on. And they actually had a fleet of boats, so they would take migrants from, from Europe to the Americas um, and to Australasia. But again, there was no concept of it engaging or being responsible for people who were displaced by environmental change or climate change. So, what am I looking at? Organisational change. Then the question is, well, how do I measure this? How do I understand it? I look at change along four dimensions. These dimensions are all about how they change in response to the new issue area. The first is rhetoric. Here I'm talking about public speeches. When and how have the leadership of the organisation mentioned climate change in a speech, how have their, po their position on it changed over time. Secondly, policy. What policy papers, what technical reports have come out of the organisation on climate change. Thirdly, structure. Has the composition of the organisation changed or evolved? Have they developed new units, new departments, new positions? Fourthly, operations. Here's where we get to the ground. The first three focus more on headquarters. Has there been a change in terms of the programs and the projects <coughs> of the organisation? Now my research is qualitative, but in order to give us a sort of indicator, what I do is I'll go through and I score each of these categories from zero to 10. And these aren't normative, I'm not saying that zero, 10 or one is better than each other. It's just to say zero is no change and 10 is a complete transformation. And this gives us an overall approximation. So in terms of how I've gathered the data for each of these four categories, as I've said, it's qualitative and I've done a primary and secondary literature review, very exhaustive in terms of collecting all the speeches that have been made by each organisation and all of the reports to try and chart these um, changes, and then conducted field work in the headquarters in Geneva, um, as well at Copenhagen, the Climate Change Summit, Kenya, and Oslo was the Nansen um, 
conference that uh, I think has been mentioned earlier on climate change and, and displacement. So now, getting to the changes that have happened. Well, UNHCR um, was interesting because it was in many ways a late starter on the issue of climate change. Um, in the early 2000s, they didn't really do anything on or sort of mention climate change at, at a rhetoric level. Um, and in fact, many other organisations, I've got some of them here in Central uh, Committee of the Red Cross is one example of capacities around of an organisation that started much earlier. They started in 2002 and set up um, a climate change centre. Um, but the first time they really mentioned, at a, uh, the, the High Commissioner really mentioned climate change was in 2007 at an executive committee, and that's the member states um, meeting together. And the High Commissioner spoke out on the importance of climate change and how it was causing mass displacement at this executive committee uh, meeting. And states did not meet it very well. Many of them were, were, were very suspicious and uh, about why the High Commissioner was talking about it. Then he continued to talk about the issue of climate change. In 2009, he said that climate change is expected to unseat conflict as the main driver of mass migration. And in 2010, 2011, uh, the High Commissioner spoke out about the need for a new convention for those displaced across borders. So what he's saying is our current refugee convention doesn't cover these people, we need something new. In terms of policy, oh, and I didn't say, so I scored that overall a score of seven. Um, in terms of policy change, what we see is initially, again, reluctance on behalf of UNHCR to engage with this issue. Um, there's a humanitarian uh, interagency group called the Interagency Standing Committee that meets on a regular basis in Geneva. They set up a working group on climate change and migration within this interagency group. And UNHCR was a somewhat reluctant member initially. They didn't really see what the issue linkage was to their, to their work. Um, and they did get it eventually involved in about 2008-2009 and they wrote a submission to the United Nations Framework Convention on statelessness and how climate change may lead to statelessness in, the, in particular in the context of uh, low-lying island states. The first policy paper on climate change explicitly came out in 2008 and it made three key points. First of all, climate refugee is a misleading term, and this is a core part of UNHCR's um, policy statement, to say we can't use this term to really refute it. Secondly, climate change will lead to displacement, and most of this, though, they said would be internal and would be covered within the existing frameworks of the IDP principles. And thirdly, there would be protection gaps for those displaced internationally. And in 2011, they started to work towards get, addressing these protection gaps. And at Nansen, which was the conference I mentioned in Oslo, hosted by the Norwegian government, they, started, they called for a new guiding framework for those displaced internationally. Structure change. Well, in terms of new units or new positions, very little has happened. Um, basically, I found that the focal point was passed around like a hot potato. Um, so it went from one agency, one sorry, department to another, which suggests that they didn't really know where to place um, this work. Sorry, the score's fallen off, that should be three. Um, in 2011, just last year, they did get a new position, but this was actually funded completely by the Norwegian Refugee Council, and it was on climate change adaptation. And in terms of operational change, no real changes in operation. So there's nowhere that's sort of saying we're seeing this big influx of climate change displaced peoples, even though we've sort of problematised this term anyway, but nowhere sort of saying we're seeing a big intake and we need to, we need to change our operations. Um, and my field work in Kenya, I went to two refugee camps, Dadaab near the Somali border 
and Kakuma near the South Sudan border. And here, my interviews with UN actually our staff suggested there were no protection gaps due to climate change displacement. So everyone coming into Kenya was understood in the traditional sense um, as a refugee. Climate change, some acknowledge, may be impacting on refugee displacement, but it wasn't uh, seen as a core driver. The only, I've put an anomaly down here, which is the Pacific, and there are some signs that in Papua New Guinea, UNHCR is assisting the government to, with relocation from a very low-lying atoll in the Carterets. But it's a very small, we're talking about you know, a dozen families, it's not a mass scale um, assistance. So then we get, these are the findings that you can see. So again, as I've said, these are indicators, they don't represent, they're not sort of quantitative data, but they just give us a sense of how much change has actually occurred. And as you can see, the, an overall change of four, and the most is sort of at the rhetoric level. Very little at operations. Now in terms of IOM, IOM is interesting because they did start to engage with this debate of environmental migration in the 90s. However, they were engaging with it, um, partly I argue, because of the Rio summit. So the Rio summit in 1992 was the big, one of the big uh, UN Earth summits on environment. And so they started to think about, well, how does environment relate to our um, core issue area of migration? And they published some reports. But what's interesting is when they were talking about environmental migration, it's very different from what we will see later. Firstly, they were thinking about environment as pollution. So they were writing reports, for instance, on Eastern Europe and Chernobyl fallout. Um, and secondly, they were thinking about how migration and their activities impacted on the environment. So in fact, in this period in the 90s, and similarly in UNHCR, you saw the beginning of sort of environmental impact assessments within these organisations. Then there was a hiatus between 1996 and about 2007 and nothing happened, which sort of correlates with my argument that when an issue is low status, the organisation doesn't engage. As climate change came back onto the international agenda, they started to talk about it again. And we saw the Director General saying that the International Organisation for Migration has an obvious role in addressing the linkages between environmental degradation, climate change and migration. So really stating the position that this is something important to care about. He was present at Copenhagen, um, as you saw in the first slide. And he talked about how the international community should accept the principle of people who must migrate temporarily or permanently in order to adapt or to survive to climate change. And the key thing to note here is that their position is slightly different from UNHCR because they're a migration agency. So they see migration as a positive, not just as a problem. And that they really want to encourage people as well to be able to migrate and adapt, to, uh, to use migration as a way to adapt to climate change. In terms of policy change, well interestingly, they had their first conference on environmental migration in the 2000s, in the same month that the International Panel on Climate Change released its fourth report. The fourth report was a really big, important report which kind of solidified the science. It was the most hard-hitting of any of them. And the conference, um, at this conference, they did mostly talk about environmental migration in the way they'd been talking about it in the 90s. And they came up, though, with a definition, a working definition of what an environmental migrant was. And this work sort of started, relaunched re their, their engagement with the issue. And they were actually leaders um, in the Interagency Standing Committee, that's that humanitarian group in Geneva, um, in terms of bringing people together and trying to think, what should we be submitting to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change to do with migration? And there, one of their key advocacy points was that we should be advocating for migration to be seen as an adaptation strategy. And that should actually be in the agreement, in the core text of the United Nations um, Climate Change Agreement. And they succeeded and got what's known as paragraph 14F, where migration is recognised as an adaptation strategy. 
And from a cynical viewpoint, you could argue that this enables them to get access to adaptation funding. It's very hard to draw that line to show that funding is trickling through to the organisation, but there are some who have made this argument when I've um, interviewed them. In 2009, they released their first policy paper. Again, you'll notice the date, the same year as Copenhagen, and stressed uh, the sort of linkages between migration, climate change, and the environment, and talked about how the organisation had developed a lot of research uh, expertise on it. In terms of structure change, here again we get a pretty low score, and this is it's quite hard to score IOM in this sense because the structure of the organisation is very decentralised, so they don't have a big policy base at headquarters. But what is interesting is that they had loose focal points, so people who were given responsibility to work on climate change, and these people have stayed the same throughout. So they really uh, institutionalised, I guess, um, climate change within the organisation, even though it's quite decentralised. And they had a strong research focus, so a number of staff working on it on a regular basis. But there were no sort of full-time staff who were given um, full capacity as far as I'm aware to, to work on it. Operations change. Um, so I've mentioned it's a very projectized organization. And what that means is that they get funding for specific projects and hire staff for this, and then they do them, carry them out. And this is a uh, I take the 500 projects from um, one of their senior managers who was citing this in 2011 and saying, look, we've done 500 projects on environmental migration. So they, they claim to have done a lot. And I'll pass this around because this, this was um, the compendium on migration, climate change and the environment which lists a number of these projects. And if you have a look through, you'll notice some of them are very weak linked to IOM's core mandate. They do things like putting in youth into Senegal's environment ministry. And so there's sort of projects which it's not entirely clear how they're linking in with areas of their expertise. Um, so I've given them a score of seven because they've made a lot of change, but I now just want to take a quick diversion to actually look at what's happened on the ground in terms of while they've relabeled these projects, what are they actually doing? So this is one of the projects that they're doing um, at Kakuma, which is a refugee camp near the South Sudanese border. And IOM has started to set up uh, alternative livelihoods with pastoralists. So people in this area, um, as this previous photo shows, are predominantly Turkana pastoralists. Um, and IOM has provided wells. They set up a project in 2010, which is quite a mouthful, livelihood support to pastoralist communities and refugee host communities. These are basically the same communities. They're people, communities in this area, in northern Kenya, are all pastoralists and they're hosting refugees in response to climate change and refugee influx in northern Kenya. Now, this project had, the basic aims was to create alternative livelihoods. Um, so they did things like, uh, I showed you water wells, they provided chickens, um, they did built a number of uh, these sort of greenhouses where they were trying to encourage this very, you know, sand essentially here, um, pastoralists to grow crops. They were also doing an interesting project which was uh, a car wash project. So they'd set up car washing equipment because a number of the refugees um, have cars. The pastoralist community don't, so the refugees are actually wealthier in, many, in, in some cases, and the pastoralist community were washing cars. 
Now, there are a number of problems that I saw with these projects, and I, I should confess I'm not a specialist in development sort of sustainable um, agricultural projects, but just from, from my naive eye, it seemed to me that there were a number of problems. First of all, there's a long problematic history of sedentarising pastoralists, which many of you will know very well. There's sort of an assumption that, you know, pastoralist lifestyle, a nomadic lifestyle isn't a good lifestyle, but also there's huge behaviour and cultural changes that need to happen if you're going to try and shift somebody from being a pastoralist's herding goat to uh, growing crops. Secondly, I saw the methods as pretty ineffective in terms of they were paying people to go and water these particular plants inside the greenhouse. And I got the sense, you know, they were coming from quite far away, a number of kilometres on a bike with their water. I didn't really get the sense that this was going to last very well um, once the, the money stopped coming in. Um, and I think what I found most interesting, though, was the origins and how this program evaluated. Why was it that IOM started working with pastoralists in northern Kenya trying to grow plants? Now, when I tried to trace it back, what I found is that IOM had set up an emergency post-conflict relief unit in Kenya in 2008. And this unit was established to deal with post-election violence. So in 2008, Kenya had a very tight election race, which led to a lot of uh, ethnic tensions and a lot of violence, and a number of people were internally displaced, thousands in fact. So IOM said, we're going to set up a unit, we're going to try and help this situation. And they worked mainly in the Rift Valley. Now this is important because the Rift Valley is a very fertile agricultural area. So a lot of their projects were peace building and sort of sustainable livelihoods and trying to help them uh, internally displace peoples and other communities grow and have a livelihood. Now their funding was very flexible, it was from the Japanese. And they sort of ran out of humanitarian sort of post-conflict emergency work in 2008. And they said, right, what are we going to do? We need another sort of emergency project to work on. A drought was declared by the president in that year. And so they said, right, let's go up north. That's where the drought's hardest hit. There's pastoralist communities. We'll move on there. And they did. And they took the same staff and the same projects, exactly the same, all the way up to northern Kenya. And you could see them trying to implement things that had worked, perhaps, in the Rift Valley, but did not work here. Now, the point of telling the story is to get a sense of what does a functional organisation do and how, is it, how it's so flexible. The organisation was able to shift so easily because of, there was no internal resistance. And you would actually argue you would never be able to see that kind of flexibility for a number of reasons. One, that they, there's such a strong sense of core identity and staff would say, wait, that's out of our mandate. We can't suddenly shift into working with pastoralists from working with IDPs. And so I think that example really gives you a sense of, of the differences in the organisations, and it's reflected in, in the differences in, in the scores. So, just to sort of sum up, explaining the variation, what we've seen is we've seen IOM, um, changes, sorry, I should have highlighted, pretty similar in terms of at headquarters level in many ways, although I think differences in terms of timing and the substance of what they're saying, so these don't reflect the sort of substance but the operations being the main um, change. And so there's two variations. One is timing and one is the extent of the change. In terms of timing, um, I argue that IOM was faster to engage with the issue, much more reflexive to when, the issue, when climate change became important. Um, and UNHCR was much slower. And this is because IOM as a functional organisation followed the logic of consequences, engaged when climate change had high absolute say, it's when people started talking about it, when there was a lot of media coverage, whereas UNHCR followed a logic of appropriateness. It only wanted to engage when it could see a strong issue linkage. Then you have IOM changing more at the functional level, uh, at the operational level, and uh, UNHCR more or less at the operational. Again, 
as a result of their different types. So in conclusion, my basic argument is um, that the type of organisation matters in explaining how and when organisations change. And secondly, that this issue linkage that we're sort of talking about within the seminar series serves an institutional purpose and that we really need to unpack that. Thanks. If you've enjoyed this download, you might like to listen to other podcasts of Forced Migration Online. www.forcemigration.org slash podcasts.